am so excited to be back here again with you again today. Our study in the Pentateuch has been such a blessing to me this year. It has been such a privilege to dig deep into another section of our study. And I can't wait to share with you the incredible truths that I've discovered as I've studied the book of Numbers. But wow, what a week of study, right? Just this week, as we've done our lesson, we have seen multiple Israelite rebellions, a disobedient prophet and priest, a false prophet prophesying, national apostasy, and 1.2 million dead bodies scattered in the wilderness. I admit, it looks depressing at first glance. But let me assure you, it is not. These 11 chapters, they serve as a backdrop for some of the most glorious truths in the entire Bible. God loves to put his glory on display. And in these chapters, God does just that. In this lesson, we will see the beauty of God's faithfulness in brilliant contrast against evil and sin and rebellion. As God's people sin greatly, God demonstrates an even greater loyal love. And so as we turn to Numbers 15 through 25, we will see how God demonstrates his faithfulness to Israel despite her rebellion and her enemies so that you may better understand your salvation and that you might rejoice in God's faithfulness to you. You can find your outline for this morning on the back of your lesson, and it's also up on our screen. And for those of you with the lesson, just quickly mark out the second, um, on the second line it says that it's in Numbers uh, 20, it says Numbers 21 to 24. It's actually 21 to 25, so the line on the screen is correct. So please turn with me to Numbers 15. We're going to look about how God demonstrates his faithfulness to Israel in the wilderness. Number one, despite her rebellion. And number two, despite the opposition of the nations. In Numbers 15 is where we're at. As we approach today's text, in Numbers chapters 15 through 25, it's important to look back at what we've been studying in order to set the context for where we are today. Numbers can be broken up into three main parts. Chapters 1 through 10 shows Israel's obedience. Chapters 11 through 25 shows Israel's disobedience. And chapters 26 through 36 end by showing the second generation on the plains of Moab with renewed obedience. And so we see obedience, disobedience, renewed obedience. All of the events from the Exodus to Numbers 14 take place within a short span of two years. However, the first five chapters in our lesson today, Numbers 15 through 19, cover 37 years of wilderness wandering. You heard that right. Five chapters cover 37 years of wilderness wandering. And what is the point of having so few chapters covering so many years? I believe one reason is that it demonstrates just how wasted and useless those years really were. God brought Israel into the wilderness to test her and to prepare her to bring her home to the promised land. Do you remember the theme of the Pentateuch? God says, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell with you in the land. God brought Israel into the wilderness to test her and refine her, but instead Israel rebelliously tested God. As we consider these wasted years in the wilderness, we're going to trace the transition between the first and the second generation of Israelites. The first generation is rebellious, while the second generation is obedient. And it will be this second generation, zealous for God's glory, who will conquer the land. We ended last week during a really, really low time in Israel's history. Numbers 11 through 12 revealed the unthankful and rebellious hearts of Yahweh's people, God's people, whom he had rescued from slavery with a mighty hand, the people whom he had called to himself, 
the people whom he had established as a nation under his care and under his rule. The saddest part of all, though, was in Numbers 13 and 14, when Israel doubted God's provision and his covenant, and they refused to enter the promised land because of their fear and unbelief. They refused to go home. They refused to go home. They refused to believe that the God who could rescue them from slavery in Egypt could defeat their enemies and establish for them a home in the land. Because of their unbelief, God vowed in Numbers 14 that not one of those who had seen his glory and put him to the test would enter the promised land. Instead of dwelling in the land, this rebellious generation was doomed to perish in the wilderness only to have their children receive the land that they refused to enter. Incredibly, despite Israel's unbelief and God's proclamation of judgment, God remains faithful to his promise to bless his people. In Numbers 15 through 21, we see how number one, God demonstrates his faithfulness to Israel despite their rebellion. Israel rebels, and yet God is still faithful. As we consider our first main point, Israel's rebellion, we will see that there are three stages of Israel's rebellion in these chapters. Israel rebels, Israel's leaders rebel, and Israel rebels and repents. So if you're taking notes, this is letter A. God demonstrates his faithfulness to Israel despite their rebellion when A, Israel rebels and God confirms his mediator. And this is from Numbers 15 through 19. Following Israel's rebellion and refusal to enter the land in Numbers 14, chapter 15 opens with God reminding his rebellious people of his faithfulness to one day bring them into the land where they will worship him. Looking forward toward Israel's future in the land, this chapter lays out regulations for worship once they arrive. There are sacrifices for thanksgiving, for worship, as well as atonement sacrifices for the repentant sinner. But as you read in verse 30, there is an example of a type of rebellion for which there is no sacrifice. The sinner who does anything with a high hand and reviles the Lord is guilty of unrepentant disobedience, of defiant blasphemy. He sins with his eyes wide open, with full awareness of his actions, regardless of the, of the consequences. This sinner would be utterly cut off from his people with no hope of restoration. This stands in contrast to both the intentional and unintentional sins previously mentioned in chapter 15, as well as ones we looked at in Deuteronomy a few weeks ago. Those sins had prescribed sacrifices and the, and the promise of forgiveness. But the kind of sin mentioned in verse 30 had no sacrifice prescribed and no forgiveness was offered because this sinner feels no guilt. Without guilt... Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Numbers 15, 32 through 36 describes someone who sins just in this way. His sentence was death. High-handed, defiant sin deserves death. The type of deliberate and blasphemous sin that we see on a small personal scale in Numbers 15 is seen on a wide congregational scale in Numbers 16. In number 16, we're introduced to Korah, a privileged member of the Levites and a company of rebels that surrounded him. These leaders rose up against Moses and Aaron. They rebelled against Moses and Aaron's position of authority. They desired the unique privileges and the honor that came with the priesthood. They desired to usurp the authority of God's chosen men, and to illegitimately acquire that authority for themselves. These rebels, they could come and they could offer sacrifices before Yahweh, but he would not accept them because only those whom God chooses can come near. This rebellion was more than a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, though. This was a rebellion against God. This was a rebellion against God's choice and God's plan, his plan for a relationship with his people. 
Korah's rebellion ended with Korah and all of his company being swallowed by the earth. The leaders who had approached the sanctuary and they offered unauthorized fire to Yahweh, they were themselves consumed when God refused to accept their sacrifice. If you offer unacceptable sacrifices before Yahweh, you will become the burnt offering instead. Remember Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10? After God judged Korah and the mutinous leaders, the congregation, they didn't fear God. They didn't revere his holiness, having just seen him pass judgment on those rebels. Instead, they revolted. This congregational rebellion, it resulted in God sending a plague of judgment upon all of Israel. Even in the midst of all this, though, God was faithful to his people. His holy fury was burning against their rebellion. But when his judgment began, God's chosen man stood as mediator between God and his wayward people. God's chosen priest, Aaron. Unlike the illegitimate rebels, God accepted Aaron's offering. He acknowledged his intercession. God confirmed his high priest when Israel needed it the most and they wanted it the least. As the plague spread rapidly through the camp, Aaron ran into the midst of the assembly and made atonement for their sin. Number 1648 says that Aaron stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Aaron made atonement for the people and God accepted his sacrifice. At a time when God's wrath was being poured out on Israel because of their attempt to usurp the priesthood. God used his chosen priest to accomplish atonement on their behalf and his wrath was appeased. God gave Israel what they needed the most when they wanted it the least. 14,700 people died that day. The rebellious and the unbelieving Israelites were struck down by God's wrath and judgment. Remember, there's no forgiveness for the high-handed, defiant sinner, but only death. And yet, all of Israel was not destroyed. Again, they were not all destroyed because God accepted the mediation of his priest. Immediately following the events in chapter 16, the Lord speaks again to Moses in chapter 17. God graciously in the sight of all the people. Now, once again, he confirms his choice of Aaron and his family to serve as priests before him. When each tribe presented their staff before the Lord, it was Aaron's staff that from the tribe of Levi, which sprouted blossoms and almonds. Aaron was God's chosen mediator. From Aaron's family would come the line of the Levites. Korah's rebellion, remember, was a Levite rebellion. So in Numbers 18, we really see God's kindness when he speaks again to Aaron and he actually reconfirms and clarifies the privileged status status of the Levites to serve the priests and to care for the temple. Do you see God's grace? Do you see God's faithfulness? The rebellious people are judged, but even as their bodies are scattered in the wilderness, God confirms his mediators. Because ladies, without a mediator, there is no access to God. God's people must come to God his way. As the Israelites continue to rebel against, against God in the wilderness, they experienced the consequences for their sin. They were defiled and they died in the wilderness. According to Levitical law, anyone who touches a dead body or even touches the grave of a dead body would become unclean. 
as we remember from our previous study in Leviticus, the worshiper, they, the worshiper must be clean to dwell in the presence of Yahweh. Only those who were clean could participate in worship and interact with others within the community. In Numbers 19, we're introduced to the red heifer sacrifice, which would cleanse those who were made unclean through touching a dead body. Because of Israel's rebellion, Jews were dying all over the wilderness. The MacArthur Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible estimates that around 1.2 million Israelites died in the wilderness as they wandered for 37 years. 1.2 million. I did the math for those of you who are math challenged. Averaged out, that is more than 86 people a day. It is likely that every single Israelite would come in contact with a dead body, probably on multiple occasions. Their proximity with, with death would have regularly reminded them that there's a connection, there's a correlation between sin and death. The, sin, the soul that sins shall die. As they came in contact with death and were made unclean, God provided a way to be made clean again, to be brought back into fellowship with God and with his people. Remember, there's no fellowship, no worship, no communion with Yahweh or his people for the unclean Israelite. But God provided a way for them to be made clean. This rebellious and wicked generation, they did not deserve the mediation of the priests. They did not deserve the provision of atonement. They did not deserve cleansing. But God faithfully provided it anyway. Can you see the beauty in these chapters? Can you see it? Can you see God's faithfulness demonstrated to his people, even as they rebelled against God's holiness and his goodness? Even as they rebelled against his chosen mediators, Israel rebelled and God confirmed his mediators. Israel rebelled and God judged, but he also provided cleansing. God provided a way for his people to have fellowship with him. God gave his people what they needed the most when they wanted it the least. And sisters, isn't that how our heavenly father has dealt with us? Isn't that the beauty of the gospel that's so precious to us? Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, rebellious, his enemies, Christ died for us. God gave us what we needed the most when we wanted it the least. God gives us what we need the most. We've seen now how God demonstrated his faithfulness to rebellious Israel in the first stage of her rebellion. Now we're going to look at a second stage of her rebellion in chapter 20. So if you're keeping up with the outline, this is letter B. God demonstrated his faithfulness to Israel in the wilderness despite their rebellion when B, Israel's leaders rebel and God chooses a new high priest. This is in chapter 20. As our narrative moves into chapter 20, some really important transitions begin to take place. After 37 wasted, wandering years, Numbers 20 begins in the first month of Israel's 40th year in the wilderness. This is their last year in the wilderness. This chapter marks the beginning of the, of the transition to the second generation. As the congregation continued to wander, they found themselves once again without water. They assembled together and they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Are you sensing a pattern here? <laughs> Just like before, they complained about their circumstances. They complained against their leaders and ultimately they complained against God. But it's also important to note some differences. Just as in previous accounts, Moses and Aaron interceded on behalf of the people. And God told Moses his plan to provide for his people. 
Moses was to take the staff from before the Lord and speak to the rock and it would yield water for the congregation to drink. God was Israel's faithful provider, even though they were hard-hearted, complaining and rebellious. But this time, Moses and Aaron did not obey God. They did not uphold God as holy in the eyes of Israel. Instead of obeying God and magnifying God as Israel's faithful provider, which he was, Moses and Aaron became angry. They, it says that Moses became bitter in Psalm 106 because of Israel's sin, and he spoke out rashly against the people. Moses took personal offense against Israel's complaining. Read with me what he says in Numbers 20, verse 10. Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Did you catch that? Shall we? Remember, ladies, God had already said he would to Moses. He'd said he would bring them water. God had already been patient with their grumbling and overlooked their sin. And he was graciously ready to provide for Israel's needs. But Moses and Aaron displayed far less patience and grace than God did with his sinful people. At the end of their wilderness wandering, even Israel's leaders rebelled against God. God responded to their sin in verse 12, which says, But Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Because of their rebellion, Moses and Aaron would not, they could not, enter God's promised land themselves. Ladies, we've seen today that Israel needed a mediator. They needed a priest. They needed someone who could stand between the dead and the living like Aaron did in number 16. Israel needed forgiveness and atonement. But Aaron and Moses had now disqualified themselves from entering the promised land with God's people. God upheld his holiness when they wouldn't, and they were judged. That could have been the end for Israel. Moses and Aaron were the best of them. No more access to God, no mediator, no mercy. But sisters, God did not leave Israel without a mediator. When Aaron was about to die, God commanded Moses in verses 26 through 29 to strip Aaron of his priestly garments and to place them on Eliezer, his son. God is faithful. God would not leave Israel without a high priest. God did not leave Israel without a mediator. God is so gracious, slow to anger with his people. God's loyal love, it ensured his people would always have someone ministering before God on their behalf. But do you know what else we learn from this chapter? This chapter reveals the weakness of these sinful human mediators. They were not sufficient. God's people, they needed a a high priest greater than Aaron. They needed a prophet worthy of more glory than Moses. They needed a sufficient sacrifice, not one that had to be offered over and over again. Sisters, what a grace we've been extended We know this high priest. We've been taught by this prophet greater than Moses. Jesus is better than Israel's weak leaders. He's a patient high priest. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. His sacrifice has satisfied God's wrath and has granted us forgiveness. His perfect life has satisfied God's holiness, perfectly upheld his holiness. And it's accomplished righteousness on our behalf. Jesus is better. He's better. 
We've seen God's faithfulness demonstrated in spite of Israel's rebellion and despite Israel's leaders' rebellion. But there's still one more stage of rebellion during Israel's years of wandering in which we will see God's enduring faithfulness to his people. This is letter C in our outline. God demonstrates his faithfulness to Israel in the wilderness in spite of her rebellion when C... Israel rebels and repents, and God forgives his people. Turn to Numbers 21. Numbers 21, 4 picks up where chapter 20, verse 21 left off. When Israel sent messengers to Edom, requesting safe passage through their land, Edom refused. Instead, they threatened to go to war with Israel if they traveled through their territory. As Israel traveled from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, the people became impatient. In typical Israel in the wilderness fashion, when the journey became hard, Israel became impatient. When their march became difficult, Israel complained. What was their complaint? It's in verse 5. There is no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. This is predictable, right? (laughs) previously we saw when Israel complained about their food or lack of water, God graciously supplied their needs. But this time there was no grace for their complaining. Only swift judgment. Yahweh sent poisonous snakes, which overran the camp and all who were bitten died. When God sent the snakes, the people of Israel, though they repented of their sin They responded by confessing their sinfulness and they seemed to genuinely recognize just how serious their disobedience was. They begged Moses to intercede for them as he had many times before. And Moses did. Moses interceded for them. But God's answer was not to stop the judgment like he had done in accounts previously. God's plan for their rescue from the venomous snakes was not to remove the snakes. It was to send another snake. It was not to remove the thought of snakes altogether, but to remind them of a snake by instructing Moses to lift a bronze serpent on a pole for all to see. No Israelite could survive once they were bitten by the venomous snakes. But God provided a way to be healed from their fatal wound. They must only look upon the bronze serpent and live. This look was more than to just catch a glimpse of it or see it in the distance. The word for look here, it carries the idea of to see with belief or understanding. To see with belief or understanding. This look was an intentional act of the will. This look was a belief that the remedy that God had provided would save them from certain death. This upcoming second generation, ladies, was different than the first generation in the wilderness. The first generation's rebellions were characterized by unbelief and unrepentance. But while this second generation still complained and they also rebelled against God's care and his, and his will for them, when disciplined, they responded in repentance. They trusted in God's remedy, in his provision for healing, and they lived. They looked and lived. In John three fourteen through 15, Jesus used the imagery from this account to demonstrate that he also must be lifted up on the cross to save sinners. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness as God's provision of forgiveness and salvation for rebellious Israel, Jesus was lifted up on the cross to save sinners. In the same way that Israel had to fix their gaze upon the serpent to look with belief, we look to Jesus for salvation Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. God provided his means for healing, for forgiveness, and for salvation. We must approach God on his terms. The one who comes to God his way 
will never be rejected. What an incredible picture. What a beautiful truth. Do you know who God forgives? God forgives repentant sinners. God forgives sinners. And by his grace, he's forgiven us. But some of you today, you might be sitting here outside of Christ, still living in your sin, still unforgiven. My friend, even now, you carry in you a sentence of certain death for your sin, but God has provided a cure. Look to the cross. Look to God's remedy. If you turn to Christ in belief, in repentance, if you fix your gaze on him, he will forgive you too. You too can look on him and live. God forgives sinners. He loves to forgive sinners. Do you see the character of our great God? Isn't God faithful to his people? God is faithful despite Israel's rebellion, despite her leader's rebellion. And he is faithful when Israel rebels and repents. He forgives them. This brings us to number two in our outline today. God demonstrates his faithfulness to Israel in the wilderness. Number one, despite Israel's rebellion. And number two, despite the opposition of the nations. In Numbers 21 through 25, we will look at three ways that the nations opposed Israel. When the nations attacked, when the nations commissioned cursing, and when the nations seduce Israel into idolatry. The first way God demonstrates his faithfulness to Israel despite the opposition of the nations is in chapter 21. Letter A in our outline. When the nations attack, God gives Israel the victory. In Numbers 21, Israel's years of wandering were almost done, as most of the first generation had died at this point. Israel was in a very interesting predicament as they marched towards the plains of Moab and toward the promised land. They were marching, remember, toward their home. As they marched, they returned to a familiar location and a familiar enemy. Remember, last week in Numbers 14, the rebellious people of Israel, they refused to believe God and refused to enter the promised land. Because of their belief, God judged them and sentenced them to wander in the wilderness until all of them, except two, had died in the wilderness. Following that judgment and against the word of Yahweh, do you remember how Israel attempted to enter the promised land on their own strength? They battled the Canaanites without the help of the Lord, and they were soundly defeated as the Amalekites and the Canaanites, they beat them back as far as Hormah. Hormah means destruction, and so it was a fitting name for their total defeat. Israel attacked the nations outside of God's will and his blessing only to their own destruction. In Numbers 21, though, through after 37 years of wandering after being refined in the wilderness, the nations attacked Israel. Israel, though, by this point, they had been refined in the wilderness and they responded by making a vow to Yahweh. If God would indeed give the people into their hands, then they would devote the Canaanite cities to destruction. Yahweh heard their prayers and gave the Canaanites into their hands. And the name of that place was again called Hormah. But it's Horma 2.0, the home of the nation's destruction. When Israel first encountered the Canaanites there, they were rebellious, disobedient, and under judgment. They were destroyed. We see this contrast now, right? This second generation was still at times rebellious, but nonetheless, they were sincere in their love for Yahweh, and he granted them the victory. This was the first of many victories that Israel would experience as, the con- as this conquest generation grew to maturity. <clears throat> this second generation of Israel 
would eventually grow to become one of the most godly generations that Israel has ever had. As we continue in chapter 21, we see Israel in more battles with the nations. In verses 21 through 31, Sihon attacked Israel and God gave Israel the victory and they took possession of his land. In verses 33 through 35, King Og of Bashan went out to meet Israel in battle and Yahweh gave them into their hand. Israel struck down all of his people until there was no survivors remaining and possessed the land. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? Where God promised his people land, seed, and blessing. God had promised Abraham that those who bless him, he will bless. And those who curse him, he will curse. God opposes Israel's enemies because God is faithful to his covenant. The nations attacked and God gave Israel the victory. God will be seen as holy in Israel. God will judge the nations for their sin. And God will be faithful to his people. God's faithfulness was demonstrated to Israel despite the opposition of the nations as they attacked and God gave Israel victory in battle. And now letter B in our outline will show God's faithfulness despite the opposition of the nations. As we see letter B, the nations commission cursing and God turns cursing into blessing. This is from chapter 22 through 24. As Israel marched towards their land and settled in the plains of Moab opposite Jericho, word of their military victories and the greatness of their God was spreading to the surrounding nations. In Numbers 22, our focus is going to shift away from Israel now, and we're going to focus on the nations. We are introduced to Balak, king of Moab, and we learn in verse 3 that Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. They were terrified of Israel. Israel had been winning these victories in battle. Balak knew that it would be impossible to defeat Israel militarily while Yahweh was on their side. So he commissioned Balaam, a well-known famous prophet during that day, to curse Israel. Perhaps Balaam could convince Israel's God to work against them. But God had other plans. In this year's study of the Pentateuch, we have seen that Israel has a unique role in God's redemptive plan. But at this point, the surrounding nations, they don't know what God's plan is. In Numbers 22 through 24, we see a pagan prophet prophesying to pagan nations. But what he prophesies is the words of Yahweh. Israel had no idea They had no idea what was going on in these chapters. They're just camping on the plains of Moab, preparing to enter the promised land. This was for the nations. The nations were going to finally learn what God's agenda was for Israel. In spite of himself, Balaam proclaimed the very words of of God. His message developed over four prophecies. And throughout these four oracles, we see a progression of God's revelation of his redemptive plan to the nations. In prophecy one, Yahweh reveals to the nations that his plan is to bless Israel. Balaam announces, no one can curse who God has not cursed. Instead, Israel will be blessed. And as a result, the nations will be blessed. And we can note the similar language to the Abrahamic covenant. A blessed people, a great nation, more numerous than the dust of the earth. Remember, God is revealing his covenant with Israel now to the nations. In his second prophecy, Balaam emphasizes God's faithfulness. His trustworthiness. Now the nations are going to hear about the character of Yahweh. God, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not accomplish it, establish it? What God has blessed cannot be revoked. God, he can't be manipulated God will do what he says he will do, even if currently it doesn't appear to be happening. God is faithful to his promises. 
Balaam's third oracle develops God's promise to Israel even further, revealing that God's plan to bless Israel centers around a king. This king will be exalted higher than other kings and will devour the nations who are his adversaries. This coming king is compared in Numbers 24 9 to a crouching lion. Where have we seen that imagery before? This is almost a direct quote of Jacob's blessing of Judah in Genesis 49 9. Balaam's fourth oracle narrows in on this promised king and his importance in God's plan. Numbers 24, 17 through 19 makes it clear that this fulfillment of this prophecy, though, is in the distant future. It's not going to happen now at the time when Israel is in the wilderness during that time. Distant future. Distant future. No one can curse whom God has blessed. God is faithful to his promises to Israel, and he uses the pagan, self-serving prophet Balaam to bless Israel and to announce his plan to the nations. And this plan centers around a king. God's plan to bless Israel has always, always from day one intended to be the plan through which he will bless the whole world. Through Israel, we get Jesus, our Savior King. We've seen God's faithfulness demonstrated in spite of the opposition of the nations as the nations attacked and as the nations commissioned cursing. Lastly, we will see it demonstrated as the nations seduce Israel into idolatry. This is letter C in our, in our outline. God demonstrates his faithfulness to Israel despite the opposition of the nations when letter C, the nations seduce Israel into idolatry And God zealously purifies his people. Chapter 25. Balaam, he failed miserably to curse Israel. And instead, he was used as the means to further bless Israel and to announce God's redemptive plan to the nations. But because of his love for money, he found another way to harm Israel. He hatched a plan to seduce her into idolatry and sexual immorality. Numbers 31, 16 and Revelation 2, 14 say that Balaam's counsel caused Israel to act unfaithfully against Yahweh. A disobedient Israel is an impotent Israel. An unfaithful Israel is a defeated Israel. While God's covenant with Israel is unconditional, the blessings and the impact of any particular generation depends upon its obedience. In order for Israel to continue into the promised land and to conquer the nations, she must be pure. Tragically, Balaam's plan worked. The women of Moab seduced Israel into all kinds of vile and unspeakable forms of sexual immorality immorality and idolatry. This is the first time Israel commits idolatry with another God besides Yahweh. Israel descended into apostasy on the plains of Moab. Numbers 25.3 says that they, Israel, joined themselves to Baal of Peor and the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel. God pronounced his judgment on the people for their idolatry. Israel must take all of the leaders of the people and execute them by hanging them in broad daylight before Yahweh. The chiefs would represent the congregation before God and would be executed by hanging. Their punishment would turn away the wrath of God against the congregation. Following God's pronouncement of judgment and while the people were weeping in the doorway of the tent of meeting, an Israelite man engaged in brazen immorality and idolatry with with a Midianite woman in the sight of all of the congregation Phineas, a priest and the grandson of Aaron, saw this Israelite man engaged in, engaged in this immoral idolatry, and he was overcome with righteous anger. He was overcome with a zealousness for the purity of God's people. He took a spear in his hand, and he pierced both the Israelite man and the woman through the belly. And he made atonement for the people. God's wrath against Israel's sin was satisfied, was appeased. 
a plague which had already begun to sweep through the congregation because of their sin was stopped. But 24,000 people died that day. Phineas made atonement for God's people and was counted righteous. Phineas was jealous for God's glory with God's own jealousy. Phineas was zealous for the purity of God's people with God's own zealousness. This is the last account of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. The very last of the rebellious first generation died right here on the plains of Peor. God is faithful. God upheld his holiness. He refined Israel in the wilderness and he had now purified his people and had prepared them to dwell in the land. He had purified and prepared them to conquer the surrounding nations and to march in such a way that the world would see that Israel's God is majestic in holiness. It was time, ladies, for Israel to go home. And sisters, God's zeal for the purity of his people in numbers is the same zeal that he has for our purity today. God can forgive our sins and can purify us because his son hung on a tree, cursed in our place, satisfying God's wrath against our sin. Jesus was hung in the sight of all the people, satisfying God's wrath. Jesus was pierced to atone and to atone for and purify his people, to purify us. We've seen today that absolutely nothing can derail God's program, his plan for Israel and the nations, not Israel's rebellion, not her leader's rebellion, not the nations, nothing. Nothing can arise from the inside and nothing can attack from the outside to thwart God's plan. Did you hear that, sisters? If you belong to Jesus, nothing, nothing can thwart his work in you. Nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can defeat his plan. Nothing can derail his purposes. Nothing inside of you, nothing outside of you. Friends, consider God's glory in our text today. Consider his holiness. Consider his provision, his patient endurance with his wayward people. Consider his faithfulness, his loyal love. But man, Israel had a lot of problems, didn't they? But we are not so different from Israel, are we? We need what Israel needed. God provided for us, for us, just as he provided for Israel, but in a better way. The temporary pictures and the provisions God gave Israel in the Old Testament, they find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. They all, they all point to Jesus and what he did in his life, death, and resurrection. Christian, Christian, consider your great God. Remember the grace of your salvation. Rejoice in God's faithfulness to you. Your sins separated you from God. Jesus is your great high priest, ministering before the Father on your behalf. When you pray, approach God with confidence, knowing that Jesus is a compassionate high priest. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. You were defiled by sin. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice offered once for all and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. When you feel weighed down by the weight of your sin, when you're tempted to despair, to wonder, how can God forgive you? Instead, lift up your voice in praise. Our sins, they were many. His mercy is more. You had received a certain, a sentence of certain death for your sin. You had no hope. Jesus was lifted up as the only means of salvation. He saved you. He forgave you. You looked on him and you lived. Rejoice in your salvation. And don't forget to point your friends to Jesus. Share God's remedy for sin's curse with your loved ones. 
Jesus is their only hope too. You deserved judgment. Jesus was your substitute. He hung on the cross. He bore your shame and he fully satisfied God's wrath against your sin. When you sin against God, repent quickly. Remember that Jesus' substitutionary atonement, it counts for you and that he forever intercedes for you. You were an idolater and an enemy of God. Jesus was pierced for your transgressions. He made atonement for you and to, to purify you as a people for his own possession. Flee, run away from any sins that you're struggling with and devote your whole heart to God and to his people. You were once an idolater and now you're a true worshiper. And you are incapable of total obedience to God's law. But Jesus was perfectly zealous for God's holiness and for the purity of his people. He lived a perfect life and accomplished all righteousness on your behalf. So serve the Lord gladly. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, knowing that nothing you do will make God love you any more or love you any less because God is pleased with Christ. And through Jesus, you now enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As Hebrews 3 says, sisters, Let us not harden our hearts as they did in the rebellion. Let us not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed by the greatness of your mercy, your grace, and your faithfulness. You have set your love upon us and you have remained faithful to us in spite of our struggle with sin and in spite of the opposition outside of us. You have done this for your own sake, for your own glory. You have made us your possession and you have promised to purify us, to sanctify us and to make us like your son, Jesus. Keep these truths close to our heart this week. Help us remember the marvelous work you did in us when you saved us. Help us remember and rejoice in your faithfulness. Draw those who may not know you even now to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.